If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. If or when a nuclear bomb was dropped on Cold War Britain, the nation was primed to react fast. When the sirens sounded, children would run home from school by the quickest familiar route. Families would shelter under the stairs, waiting out the nuclear fallout, eating tinned food. While the nation's leaders would evacuate to bunkers across the country, ready to launch the regeneration plan as soon as possible. But were all of these preparations really just a load of nonsense? Completely pointless when faced with the reality of nuclear annihilation. That's something that Julie McDowell explores in her book Attack Warning Red. And Matt Elton spoke to her to find out more. So I'm here today with uh, Julie McDowell to talk about her new book, Attack Warning Red, which is about nuclear fear and nuclear preparation in Britain during the Cold War, which turns out to be a subject that really struck a nerve with me. Um, And for similar reasons, it seems to me, from your introduction, can you talk us through a bit um, when you first became aware of this as a subject? You were quite young, weren't you? Yes, it might seem hard for some people to believe, but I was three years old when I first uh, became aware of nuclear war. Uh, I was uh, sitting in front of the TV playing with my toys when a film came on BBC Two uh, called Threads, which is a a realistic uh, uh, drama documentary about nuclear war, what would happen if there'd been a nuclear attack in Britain in 1984, focused on Sheffield. And uh, my dad was watching it and obviously he'd been been told, you know, put the kid to bed, look after the kid, be a responsible parent. But he thought, oh, I can't be bothered. I'm watching this film. She's fine. She's fine in front of the TV. She wouldn't realise what the horror is on the screen. But of course I did. I took it all in and was (laughs) scarred for life, as they say, by that BBC film. And and we'll talk some more later on, I suspect, about the cultural legacy of this as a subject. But to sort of situate us uh, firmly in historical terms, first of all, what do we need to understand about the sort of post-Second World War landscape in order to make sense of fear of nuclear destruction in Britain during the period we're talking about here? Well, I do talk a lot in the book about what I call the Blitz hangover, which is um, after the Second World War, of course, Britain might have been battered and living in austerity, but we had the knowledge that we had won, that we were victorious, and that we were able to protect ourselves against attack from an enemy. And so the government tried to carry that feeling on into the nuclear era. You know, if and a war happens again, we survived attack before and we can survive attack again. We know how to prepare civil defence. We can build shelters and we can rescue people and we can feed uh, the homeless And we kind of clung to that until reality could no longer be ignored. Of course, that's when the the massive hydrogen bomb came along, which against which there is no defence, nothing at all can protect you from that. Uh, As they say, the only defence against a nuclear war is not to have one. So the events... Uh, of the final stages of the Second World War in terms of the use of this kind of weapon really left a deep scar in how Britain saw itself and how it could prepare. Is is that right? 
Yes, it was almost uh, two, two different things running alongside one another. One was, of course, the victory in 1945, but the other was the knowledge which a lot of people weren't willing to accept that this new bomb, the nuclear bomb, cannot be uh, defended against. You cannot do anything. If the war happened, it would be nothing like the Blitz. And yet we still clung to the notion that as a, as a nation, as a society, we're able to pull together and overcome an enemy. But that was simply no longer the case. But, you know, we were reluctant to give that up, of course, because it's comforting. It's a great part of Britain's myth, of course. Um, and it was hard to just realise that we had to dump that and that we were or would be defenceless if a nuclear war had broken out. It feels to me like some of the tensions and discrepancies between the reality and between this narrative are what animates some of the strangenesses of this story. Was there a period post-Second World War in which fear of nuclear war reached its peak? And what had happened to make things reach that crescendo? Well, of course, the first real peak in terms of public consciousness would have been the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, that's when, of course, the world, as they say, came closest to the brink of nuclear war. And then, of course, uh, after that, after the Cuban Missile Crisis was resolved, we then had a, a ban on nuclear testing and relations were improved between East and West. But then, as we all know, in the 80s, things got very chilly and very anxious again. Because in the 80s, to meet this rise in tension, there was an explosion in terrifying, chilling popular culture, films and pop songs in particular, about the horror of nuclear war. Um, if you look at pop culture in the 50s, that kind of portrayed the nuclear bomb and this new science as something energetic and cool and zingy that was going to change the world and maybe bring benefits. But by the 80s, it had become something to dread and something to fear, uh, something that which, which could bring about the end of the world. To get into some of the specifics, how would we have known in Britain that nuclear war had started? Well, it depends, of course, uh, where you where you lived. If you were in the centre of London or the centre of another obvious target area, you might know about it for a second before you were vaporised. Of course, you would you would be in the midst of the firestorm, the flash, the blast wave. But if you were, for example, out in the countryside or perhaps on an island, one of the Scottish islands, you might not know about it instantly. The first you might know about it is when, of course, uh, say TV and radio cuts off, everything goes silent. And then once you start to feel ill, because fallout might start to drift. So you might know about it through the physical effects of fallout, which would be a very slow and unpleasant death. In terms of physical uh, signs in the air or in the environment, you might see, of course, a firestorm from afar, you might also hear the siren because obviously towns and cities in Britain had sirens we had which were left over from the Second World War. These were often on top of fire stations or schools or hospitals. And if the system worked, those sirens would be automatically triggered. But if you're out in the countryside or somewhere uh, with a sparse population, you might not have one of these big sirens on top of a public building. In that case, you might hear the siren being wound manually by your local, for example, pub landlord or vicar or doctor. And if he or she heard uh, 
the warning coming through a little speaker, which had been fitted in their premises, they would have to grab their handheld siren, run outside, set the thing up on its little legs, and then wind it five quick turns, then five slow turns. And that gives us the distinctive rising and falling note of the siren. So yes, people who were out with the main target areas or urban areas, they might be alerted by their by their local pub landlord, who'd have to put down the pints, run outside and start sounding the siren. So when uh, doctors or other people in these local communities um, had the alert happen, what 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 was going on in order for them to be able to know that this was the situation? Well, um, Britain has what were nicknamed the golf balls on Filingdale's Moor, which was a radar, a early warning radar, which was watching the sky basically for incoming uh, Soviet missiles. So if we had detected an incoming attack, uh, it would have been first detected at Filingdale's or its its, its sister um, radar. They would have cascaded the warning down through the chain of command, so it would have gone out to other other NATO um, allies, and it would have gone down to, for example, the BBC. They would have been given the warning, and they would have used TV and radio to alert the population. It would also have gone to local police stations, which had a big, uh, major police stations had a device called uh, a carrier control point. And the policeman on duty would have received the warning through this carrier control point, which is a big bank of, of telephones. And he would have used that to flick some switches and set off uh, the the electric sirens, which were on top of you know buildings around the country, around his area rather. He would also have used his bank of telephones to deliver a verbal warning of attack warning red. And that would have gone out to our vicars, pub landlords, GPs, etc., they all had a little uh, device attached to their wall, which had been installed, of course, by the government, called a warning point. It constantly bleeped softly. That was a kind of all's well sim- a signal. It meant this thing is working, it's listening out for the warning, but just now everything's okay. But if, of course, the attack had been detected, the little bleep would have broken into a loud shriek. And that would have been, you know, the signal, oh my God, here we are, nuclear war. And that loud shriek would have become a verbal warning from the policeman, attack warning red, attack warning red. And that meant, this is it, this is it, nuclear attack incoming. You've got perhaps four minutes. So on receiving that verbal warning through the little device on their wall, they would grab their uh, handheld siren, which looked like a little barrel on three legs. So they would run outside, set it up on its, on its tripod, and then start winding the siren. So that's how the alarm would have got out through the country. You mentioned there that the experience or the the warning you would get would vary massively according to where in Britain you were. Were there particular areas or particular targets that people thought might be attacked first? Well, the experience of the Blitz, of course, told us that cities, of course, tend to be uh, huge uh, and very vulnerable target areas because, of course, if you attack a city... You're attacking industry, probably, but you're also attacking and dismantling morale. And the Second World War had taught us that uh, the population's morale is one of the most important things. If a population's morale is shattered, then you've, you've basically lost the war. So by attacking the city, you will attack the people, you will weaken morale. And of course, if that happens, then the population might start to demand that the, the, the government you know, sue for peace, etc., so cities, of course, would be seen as vulnerable, as would um, industrial areas, as would airports or ports by the sea or bridges, of course. And in, and in Britain, we've got our um, oil installations off the North Sea. So they would have been targets in the later Cold War. The problem with that is that Britain is physically, of course, quite small. 
if you compare us to the huge expanse of the Soviet Union or United States of America. And so our target areas are clustered together. So if the Soviets had attacked, say, all our major cities and major air bases, etc., you're basically taking out the rest of the country along with it because the resulting blast, firestorm and the drift of fallout will quite easily reach most of the rest of the country. So Britain's uh, one of Britain's many problems was that we were small and very crowded, both with people and with targets. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mm. And did the government have any projected figures of how many people it feared might be killed in an attack like this? Well, there was a, a report issued in the 50s, a top secret report called the Straff Report. Uh, the government had asked this to be done to examine what hydrogen bomb warfare would do to Britain. And the, the results were kept secret for many, many years because they were so horrifying and so blunt and made it so obvious that if we were attacked with hydrogen bombs, really there wouldn't be much hope for us at all. And the, the report made clear that the Soviet Union could easily uh, knock us out of the war, almost as if we were just a pawn on a chessboard. And they're thinking, if we want to, of course, get the Americans, which was their, their big, big enemy, we need to knock pesky little Britain out of the way first. Because um, as well as being you know, an ally of, the, of America, we hosted American air bases. And we were described by some as America's unsinkable aircraft carrier. So the Soviet Union could have seen us like that as something to be knocked out of the way, dismantled, punched out of the war. And it was estimated that perhaps 10 or 11 hydrogen bombs would be enough to basically knock Britain out of the war and make us meaningless and ineffective uh, in any conflict going forward. We should talk about some of the specifics that would have kicked in once this siren had been sounded. Did the government have plans in place for what would happen, first of all, to some of the, I suppose, high-ranking members of society, the politicians, the important figures? What would have happened to those sorts of people? Well, there were two different methods of uh, trying to protect the, you know, the, the bigwigs, the, the government, the, the top brass. In the early Cold War, the plan was that the Prime Minister and his uh, advisers would flee to the West Country. There was a huge underground bunker, there still is, of course, it's not in use at the moment, it's not that we know of, called Burlington. This was in Wiltshire, and the plan was that the, the government would, central government would flee there. The civil servants, advisors, scientists, uh, people from the Met Office, and the Prime Minister eventually himself would all go to this huge bunker in Wiltshire and see out the nuclear war there and then hopefully one day emerge and try and rebuild. Uh, that plan was ended in 1968 because it was realised by that point that, well, one, the Soviets might know where this is and if they do, they can, of course, a direct hit on this bunker or any bunker, no matter how deep and how well defended, will take out everything and everyone in that bunker because there's no defence against the hydrogen bomb. So the plan 
was flipped on its head, instead of sending everyone of importance to this one bunker in Wiltshire, the opposite approach was taken, and this was known as the Python plan, and that was let's scatter everyone, let's put them all into small groups and scatter them around the country. So it's, you know, don't have all your eggs in one basket. Uh, one of them, for example, would have been on a ferry, which would have gone into the sea lochs of Scotland and tried to, you know, dodge areas of, of fallout by, of course, sailing throughout the, throughout the nuclear attack. And the idea was, if everyone is scattered, if everyone is sprinkled across Britain, we can hope that at least some groups will have survived. And then in this great day in the future, we can all reunite and try and rebuild Britain. Given that this uh, plan changed so dramatically from sort of concentration to scattering, what were the sort of logistical and practical concerns? Were there concerns about how people would get fresh food and water, for instance? Yes, um, the... Provisioning of fresh food and water was always the most important thing because you can have the, the best plans, you can have the best arrangements, you can have order after nuclear war with an obedient population, but none of that matters if you can't feed them. So, of course, at the top of the tree was the notion that we must feed the survivors, we must procure food and we must then somehow distribute it around the country. Now, of course, that was going to be hellishly difficult because you can assume that after a nuclear war, Britain's road network, Britain's ports, etc. would have been, you know, destroyed. So, firstly, Britain imports a lot of its food already. So, obviously, after a nuclear war, that would have been the same. We would have been looking to import. But how do you import? Because your ports, your air bases, we can assume are gone or at least very damaged. And then we have to assume, of course, that there would still be allies willing to supply us because say we had allies across the Channel or across the North Sea, well, we can assume they've been harmed by the nuclear war too. Do they have anything to spare? Would they be willing to give it to us or to, to sell it to us? So we had experts prior to any nuclear attack. We had worked out who the experts would have been in the areas of meats and oils and fats and groceries. Um, a certain Mr Sainsbury was one of them who we thought might be a good expert, a good guy to have on board. And they would have gathered after the nuclear war, if they'd survived, and advised uh, surviving members of government on how to procure food and how to get it around the country. And even if you had managed to get over those two obstacles, how do you decide who gets the food? And that opens up a whole horrible topic of, do you give it to the sick and the vulnerable and the weak who, of course, need it? Or do you give it to those who have a chance of being productive members of society, who are able to work uh, and labour and help rebuild the country? And of course, that means allowing those who are already weak and ill to, to weaken further. So that's obviously an absolutely horrific subject. Do you waste food, if you like, on those who are going to die anyway? Do we get a sense of in which direction on that debate uh, views skewed and does that tell us anything about society at the time or how society was structured at the time? Well I've never seen anything in the archives which where the government said bluntly we will allow the sick or the weak to die even if those discussions had happened they probably wouldn't have been committed to paper because if that had leaked out then of course you know all hell would have broken loose. So but that's where popular culture kind of takes over because if we go back to the film Threads I mentioned at the beginning, that almost takes that subject and runs with it. We see that food is distributed, but it's only to those who are able to work. And if you can't work, then you'd have no value in the post-nuclear society. Um, so 
yes, popular culture certainly wasn't afraid to tackle that that awful topic. And, and I suppose the fact that the government was even prepared to spend what sounds like a fairly sufficient amount of time considering these thorny, almost impossible discussions, does that suggest that they were taking this subject incredibly seriously? Uh, they certainly were. Um, it's I've been in the archives, various archives across the country, and it's when you read uh, minutes and memos and notes of meetings with these, you know, we imagine them from the 50s, certainly, very straight-laced men in suits discussing this topic. It's it's almost absurd because they're trying to do the impossible, which is save or prepare the population for an apocalyptic event. And, of course, you can't, you can't do that. You can't sur- prepare to survive nuclear war. But I do have some sympathy for the government in, the, in that circumstance because... They didn't have any choice but to plan for it. They can't exactly say to the public, ah, well, there's no point. Because, again, that would have created perhaps panic or resentment or riots or would have perhaps stoked anti-nuclear protesters. And, of course, you know, the government didn't want that during the Cold War. We had to stand up against, you know, the Soviets. So the government were kind of stuck. People do ridicule them for their advice, for example, the Protect and Survive public information advice in the 80s was was uh, ridiculed because that implied that all you have to do is, you know, build a little shelter in your living room and snuggle underneath it and you can protect and survive, as the name suggests. Whereas, of course, if you're in a target area, nothing on this earth will protect you. And then, of course, there's the whole idea of, well, do you want to survive? Um, I, I certainly wouldn't have wanted to survive an all-out nuclear war in Britain. But at the same time, the government couldn't have just said, well, there's nothing we can do, you're on your own. So I do have some sympathy for them. Let's get into some of this then, because we've talked what would have happened to some of the the big wigs, as you said. What would have happened to uh, people on ordinary streets and villages and cities? Was there anything in place in terms of what the government could do for them or were they left to their own devices, essentially? We were entirely left to our own devices, um, In the immediate post-war period, of course, it was assumed or hoped or expected that we would have shelters provided for us as we had during the Blitz, of course. But in the Cold War, there was no provision for shelters at all. And that's, of course, because there's no point. There's absolutely no point. But neither was there any money because, of course, after the Second World War, Britain was quite battered and, of course, we were living through austerity. There was also a massive steel shortage. So even if we had seen value in resurrecting the idea of having an Anderson shelter at the foot of the garden, there was a, a steel shortage. So the government had said, we, we, we can't we can't um, have a public shelter programme. If you want one, then of course you'll need to do it yourself, pay for it yourself. And that happened in America, for example. Uh, that was quite a popular thing in the 50s, early 60s, to have a, a fallout shelter in the garden or in the basement. So the population were left to themselves. If you want a shelter, by all means, buy one or build one. But there will be no official provision by the government. We did toy with the idea of a fallout shelter. And that would be buildings which aren't expected to survive blast, because, again, no building can. But if one does, and if it is sturdy and has a basement area, then by all means, you can rush down into there and shelter there for two weeks until the fallout uh, decreases. And again, that happened in America, Soviet Union. But in Britain, again, it didn't happen. And the unwritten rule was, well, there's absolutely no point because if it does happen in Britain, (laughs) 
you're done for. There's no protection. There's no reliable protection. I find this extraordinary because on the one hand, we're saying that we need to keep somehow the population compliant and not enormously terrified. We're also saying that it was pretty much an unspoken agreement that there was actually nothing that could be done for people in suburbia, people in towns and cities. But how did you manage to balance those two things? What, if, what advice was given to people as almost as an attempt to keep them calm, even though there was nothing they could really do? So in the 80s, we had uh, the Protect and Survive leaflet. There was an earlier version of that released in the 60s called Advising the Householder on Protection Against Nuclear Attack. Um, and both had essentially the same advice, which was you can fortify your home so you can board up the windows and reinforce the exterior walls by perhaps piling up sandbags or heavy furniture or bin bags and pillowcases that you will stuff with clothing or, you know, put a chest of drawers against the wall and, you know, fill it full of books, etc. So you can, there's no shelter provided for you, but you can, if you like, make your own home a shelter and fortify it and, of course, stock it with uh, food, with clean water and with, uh, with first aid uh, supplies. But that, of course, raised all its own questions. You know, it's all very well saying you can fortify your home, but firstly... Is your home worth fortifying? You know, do you live in a tiny, flimsy little bungalow? Do you live in a high-rise flat? Uh, do you have the money to buy all these supplies, to buy sandbags, to buy wood, to buy tools, to buy two weeks' worth of foods and water? And then even if you do, is that going to be available in the shops? Because is everyone else not going to be rushing out to buy all the sand and all the foods and all the water? So... A lot of the advice might have made sense on paper if you were one middle class, relatively wealthy, had a nice sturdy house, had a bit of space and were able to get all the supplies. But if you were at the other end of the social spectrum and had no money, had no space, had a flimsy house, then you were you were really quite helpless. And so the government put all the all the um, responsibility onto the individual. But... And that, that suited the 80s, of course. That suited the, you know, look after yourself. There's no such thing as society. Don't look, expect the government to come and help you. You mentioned a period of two weeks there. Was that the uh, time period given in the advice for how long people would have to stay in their homes? Yes. You were told to allocate a room in your house which was furthest away from any outside windows, any outside walls, and that would be your fallout room. And you would have to stay in that for two weeks. So that would allow the, the fallout outside to decrease to hopefully a manageable level. But for the initial 48 hours after the attack, even the fallout room itself wasn't safe. In those initial 48 hours, you had to burrow into a tiny, tiny corner of the room known as the inner core or refuge. And that was a section of the room, again, furthest away from any outside walls, where you would prop kitchen doors, you would unscrew your interior doors, prop them against the wall, making a diagonal. And against the diagonal of the door, you would put mattresses and bags full of bedding and boxes full of books and lash it all down together. And then crawl, the whole family, crawl in underneath the door, you know, into the triangle made by sloping the door against the wall and stay there for 48 hours, which is of course unthinkable, especially if you had children. There's a famous um, episode of Panorama, 
from the early 80s where Jeremy Paxman, as the presenter, asks the family to recreate this. And they all crawl underneath the, the diagonal of the door and they take their big Labrador pup, uh, big Labrador dog with them. And, you know, Jeremy Paxman peeps inside and says, well, it's a bit crowded in there. And the, the father basically says, well, we have to, and we have to bring the dog. It's unthinkable to many people, to me especially, that, you know, you would look after the family and leave the dog outside to suffer. But that, of course, means bringing the dog into this cramped space. And then, of course, that raises the whole horrible issue of, you know, hygiene and going to the toilet, etc. And there was no easy way around that. There was no pleasant way to deal with that. Um, we can certainly talk about that if you'd like. Yes, well, we should, uh, because that seems like an important thing that would have been on people's minds. Did all those actual practical concerns make anyone just think, I'm not going to bother with this? It seems ridiculous. Well, there were certainly um, examples of people trying this. Um, there was a, an example in the 1980s, which features in my book, where a CND activist actually built himself a shelter and stayed in it for, for two weeks. Now, of course, he was a CND activist, so we can assume he was, he was biased and he was trying to show how ridiculous the idea was. A CND were completely opposed to the idea of preparing for nuclear war because they said, well, the only defence is not to have one if you prepare for it. That implies that, you know, it's not so bad. It can be, it can be um, endured. It can be survived. So this guy um, built his own shelter, according to government advice, lived in there for two weeks. And when it came to things like hygiene and going to the toilet, he was very, very blunt and uh, well, disgusting, you might say, but honest about what happened. He had to, of course, use a bucket for his toilet needs and put some of his, um, I don't know the polite way of his saying it, but put his waste in little plastic bags, you know, poo bags, you know, a dog owner will be very, very familiar with them. And he couldn't go outside, of course, because you're not allowed to for, for two weeks. So he gathered all his little poo bags in the corner of the shelter. And after a few days in this dark, quiet bunker, he began hearing a strange whistling noise and he couldn't work out what it was. And then he realised it was coming from his tightly wrapped little poo bags because he realised that after a while, the gases inside the little poo bags were trying to escape and creating this strange whistling noise. So the government, of course, in their advice, didn't say hideous things like that. You'll need to gather your little poo bags around you, which might start to whistle and shriek. But that would have been the reality of being enclosed in this space, especially with a dog, for two weeks. So, um, yes, the, the, advised, uh, the government advice uh, in, for example, Protecting Survives tried to avoid that by saying, get yourself a bucket and get yourself some disinfectant and some bin bags. And they kind of left the rest up to the imagination your book is full of some uh, really striking, some great examples. There's the uh, doctor in the town of Chippenham who issues a leaflet to his patients saying, if you are severely injured, please arrange to die where you will not pollute water supplies or cause disease. Does this humour response that we get from the discrepancy between the advice people are getting and the severity of the situation tell us something about the British character during the period? There is definitely humour involved in this topic, even though it's probably the most hideous subject, uh, the most frightening. Uh, there is definitely humour involved, and that's maybe part of the British character, which is you have to just shrug and laugh and, and get on with it. You know, during the war, certainly, that was the, 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 the national character was, you know, make do and mend, keep calm and carry on, as they say. Um, we're faced with an awful situation, but there's nothing for it but just to continue and get on with it. 
we tried to carry that on into the Cold War, but then that that the spirit of let's work hard, let's keep our chins up, let's keep going, that butted up against the fact that, well, you're facing potentially the end of the world, potentially. And so <laughs> there's almost nothing you can do except laugh about it. And even, as I often think, even if you did survive nuclear war, there is the awful question, well, would you want to? I think it was Khrushchev who'd said that um, if it did happen, the survivors would envy the dead. And maybe I'm pessimistic, but that's certainly the way that I would have seen it. I would not have wanted to survive like that after a nuclear attack. So, yes, it's probably just human nature that when faced with that, you either go under and give up or you, you laugh about it. And there is certainly a lot of absurdity in this. Um, when I was in the National Archives, one of my favourite examples of the absurdity of British nuclear war planning is to do with um, lemon drops and sweets. Um, when we were thinking of building fallout shelters, the civil servants wondered, what do we stop them with? What type of rations? And uh, a good example was uh, boiled sweets because they're, of course, easy to stack, you know, just boxes and boxes of boiled sweets. And the, they'll, they'll be a good source of energy. You know, it's, it's sugar, it's a carbohydrate hit. So let's stock them high with boiled sweets. But then one civil servant said, uh, well, excuse me, but if we're all sucking permanently on boiled sweets, won't that hurt the roof of the mouth? The roof of the mouth. So when Britain was trying to prepare for the end of the world, there were some guys down at Whitehall saying, mm, lemon drops, is that really such a good idea? So that's an example of, um, you just have to laugh at how absurd that is. And how were these huge, horrible subjects and fears conveyed to children? And what plans were put in place for what would happen to them if something like this happened? Um, America did a better job than Britain of preparing its children. Um, there was no specific way of uh, teaching children about this. Individual parents, individual families, of course, could do that. But certainly in America, children were, in the early Cold War, forcibly um, acquainted with this through uh, cold uh, nuclear attack drills in school, the famous duck and cover drills. So all the little kids would be in their class in America and the teacher would be trained to all of a sudden shout, drop! And all the little kids were taught to immediately jump under the desk and adopt what was called the atomic clutch position where you would burrow under the desk and put your hands behind your neck almost like the brace position on a, on a plane that we're all told about they were also taught that if we get advanced warning of the attack you know the siren goes off and we have we have minutes to prepare then little kids were taught either you follow the teacher down into the school gymnasium or school basement and you all huddle against the wall. Again, the same as our protected survival advice, find a big sturdy wall far from the exterior and you would hunker down there. Or if the little kids were close enough to home and it was judged that they, you know there was maybe 20 minutes until impact, the little kids were told, OK, practice your route home and try and get back home to mummy before the bomb drops, which is, of course, horrific. Because the, when I was a child, the whole idea of walking home from school, it was a pleasurable thing. Whereas these little American kids were being taught the route home from school might have to be raced back home and um, trying to get back home to the safety of, of mum before the bomb drops. It's horrific. But there was nothing like that in Britain. There was no formal programme of protection or civil defence aimed at children. Uh, again, as with adults, it was just a case of you're left to your own devices. Here's a booklet. Read it if you want. Prepare it if you want. It's, it's up to you. 
it feels to me like in many ways the, the the contours of this story, the way it played out, are shaped by the political attitudes of the time. And I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the the um, civilian political groups that emerged during the 70s and 80s particularly. What were they and what's their role in this story? Well, of course, the most famous one is, is CND. Um, CND, uh, CND is the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. So they were, of course, uh, an activist group who were formed uh, in Britain after the the bomb, of course, was uh, was invented after the war, and they wanted to ban the bomb. That was their famous phrase, "ban the bomb." Um, so they famously would host huge rallies in Trafalgar Square, and they would march from Trafalgar Square to Aldermaston, which is where Britain's uh, nuclear bombs were were made. So they were hugely popular in the immediate post-war period. They kind of fell away in popularity in the in the late 60s and 70s because, well, nuclear fear itself abated at that period in the Cold War. We had our nice period of detente in the 70s where things were a bit easier, a bit gentler. And, of course, at that period, Vietnam had arisen. So a lot of anti-war protesters, basically, they were distracted or diverted elsewhere. But then in the 80s, when Vietnam, of course, had ended and when nuclear war, the threat of nuclear war came through, thundering back into the public consciousness, CND arose again and became again hugely uh, popular, hugely important. Their image changed also. In the 50s and 60s, they were known, or their image was, that they were quite quite stuffy and quite sensible. And the, the image of a CND activist was um, like a vicar or a, or a very earnest student in a duffel coat. But by the 80s, CND, when they arose again in power and influence, had become cool and they had pop groups and they had punks at their at their protests. They were no longer stuffy and earnest. They were now cool and they had purple hair and they had good music. But really CND needed fear, whether they like to admit that or not, they, they depended upon the rest of us being terrified. So in the 80s and in the in the 50s, when we had peaks of fear in the Cold War, that is when CND were at their most uh, prominent and most powerful. And their argument, uh, and you can't really uh, take issue with this, is that you can't survive a nuclear war. And so it's wrong to tell the public or to imply to the public that you can prepare for it. Because not only does that mislead people, but it maybe leads us closer to nuclear war because it makes us think arguably, that it's an acceptable risk. If it does happen, well, we, we can pull through it. And that's that's nonsense, of course. If it was, if an all-out nuclear war had happened, it would be potentially apocalyptic, potentially the end of, of life on Earth because of the theory of nuclear winter, which arose in, in the early 80s. Uh, nuclear winter, of course, is the idea that, or the theory, that a nuclear war will create so much soot and smoke, which will all be lofted into the atmosphere, that it will block out much of the sunlight. And of course, that will create, uh, obviously, plunging temperatures down on Earth, killing people, but also killing crops, and therefore leading to famine. Uh, Apocalyptic climate change is what we're talking about. Uh, The theory arose in the early 80s, and then it fell out of favour. But it's recently come back into favour because climate change science, of course, has has now been taken very seriously. Uh, Computer modelling has led to it being um, evaluated more clearly and it has now been emphasised that yes, it is a very, very genuine uh, threat. So 
that just makes nuclear war all the more unsurvivable. Because if you survive the attack itself, if you survive the blast and the firestorm and the heats and the fallout, you've still got potentially years afterwards of apocalyptic climate change, the nuclear winter. So when you're faced with all of that, C and D, I believe, are quite right to say you can't survive for this. Therefore, there's no point planning for it. But then at the same time, just shouting ban the bomb, I think, is a bit simplistic because even if we did give up the bomb, well, no one else is going to. So what difference does it make? And I suppose it's hard to have nuance in a period where things have become so extreme. That's true. Yes, um, certainly. In the 80s, if you look at the image of CND, uh, it was, oh, they're, they're lefties or they're, they're commies, they're controlled by Moscow. That was always the suspicion that they were being funded or influenced by Moscow. So there was, yes, nuance is very, very hard when you're faced with, with terror, basically. But then, of course, it all arose again in the 80s. Um, Ronald Reagan is accused of being a bit uh, a bit gung-ho and a bit cavalier with his language, aggravating the Soviet Union, calling them evil empire, famously, accusing them of crimes against humanity. And then, of course, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. There was the famous Abel Archer incident in the early 80s. So the early 80s was terrifying. That's what, where I first became aware of it all, of course. Um, but of course, as we all know, that soothed when Gorbachev came into power in the Soviet Union. We had um, the fall of the Berlin Wall, obviously, which itself had a bit of nuclear tension because people were thinking, well, are the Soviets going to just you know, let the wall fall, let the border open? But as we know, we got out of that um, relatively easily. Um, there are so many incidents in the Cold War where we seem to have got through and avoided nuclear war just down to luck. And the most famous is probably the incident in the early 80s with Stanislav Petrov, who's known as the man who saved the world, um, uh, working in defence over in the Soviet Union. And one night he saw, well, the computer told him there was an incoming American missile attack. And of course, procedure uh, said that he should have immediately alerted everyone else in the chain of command. Incoming missile attack, you know, go, 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 let's get them. But he decided to hold back because he thought, well... If the Americans were going to launch an out-of-the-blue attack, they would throw everything at us. Because the idea is, if you're going to launch first, you have to uh, knock out as much of your enemy's weapons as you can so that they can't retaliate, or at least can't retaliate in full. So he thought, no one would to hold back. And so he did. And then the computer again says, oh, another one, and this time here it is, here is the full attack. But by this point, he thought, I don't trust the computer. I just don't trust it. So that was just luck. We had we had the sheer good luck that Stanislav Petrov, with his cool reasoning, was on duty that night. If it had been someone else, if it had been a typical Soviet guy with you know following the, the following instructions, letting the party decide, letting the superiors decide, he would probably have escalated it up the chain of command. They would have pressed the button, as they say, and we'd all have been gone. So sheer good luck had Stanislav Petrov on duty that night. Throughout this conversation, we've talked about um, punks, we've talked about Threads, the BBC TV drama that sort of terrified a generation, it feels like. If you had to put together a cultural playlist of four or five songs or TV shows or films that you think in some way capture the atmosphere or the history we've talked about, what would you choose? 
I would choose, well, firstly, films and pop music. Um, I'm a real bookworm. I absolutely love uh, literature, but I have never found a great nuclear war novel. Um, I love The Road by Cormac McCarthy, but that's obviously you know written after the Cold War, and some people say it's not strictly about a nuclear war. But let's stick to the Cold War. So the greatest things, of course, are Threads, uh, highly realistic uh, drama made in 1984, uh, absolutely brutal and merciless, and I truly believe that once you've seen it, you will be you will be changed for it by um, forever. There's no way you can watch Threads and then just press stop and go about your day. It will stay with you. Um, incredibly powerful. So Threads is, of course, the greatest of all nuclear war films. Um, the Americans made. A, a nuclear war film at the same time called The Day After, but that's a pathetic, watery example of, of a nuclear war. Um, I like to watch it just to just to touch and fold my arms and say this isn't as good as Threads. I would say also When the Wind Blows, which is, of course, an animated film and a comic or graphic novel by Raymond Briggs, famously the author, of course, of The Snowman. Till where Threads is brutal and horrifying, When the Wind Blows is agonisingly sad. It's about an old couple living in, uh, I think it's Sussex, it's rural, pretty rural Britain in the early 80s. And uh, they they know, of course, that nuclear war is coming. You know, it's on the radio, it's on the TVs and the newspapers. But they think, because they're an old couple in the 80s, that it will be just like the Blitz. And they think, they almost... They think back to the Blitz with fondness and they're, they're just, they're so removed from the reality of it and they have no idea what's coming and when it does happen, it is horrific. They are, they're confused and they try to, they slowly become ill with radiation sickness and they try to, you know, make some tea and we'll be okay and why, why is the phone not working and why is the paper boy not been and the postman hasn't been and they cannot understand what's happened to them it is agonizingly sad uh, and if you look at pop music god there's so many great pop songs about nuclear war uh, my favorite is probably uh, breathing by kate bush because it looks at nuclear war from the from the point of view of a, an unborn child, uh, a fetus in its mum's uh, stomach, who is aware of of a bright light and a poison outside, and of course, mum, who's obviously survived a nuclear war, is is breathing in this this awful poison, and it's slowly killing or damaging the kid inside her. Side, and that just reminds me of how I was when I was watching Threads at the age of three, aware that this film was giving me horror but I couldn't really understand what it was or what it meant or or why the adults around me couldn't protect me from it or why no one would fix it. Um, so breathing is very powerful. Um, I also love Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Uh, the lyrics aren't great much, but the, the video is very famous. The pop video has um, a guy impersonating Reagan and one impersonating, I think it's Chernenko, and they're slugging it out in a boxing ring whilst um, the world's media cheer them on and shout and scream and holler. And of course, the sound of it is a very menacing and very drumming and very alarming sound. So um, poor lyrics, but a uh, great, great vibe and great atmosphere. Um, you end your book with an epilogue bringing us up to date, bringing us up into the events of recent months where we've got um, Putin's uh, nuclear threats uh, seem to be on the rise again. 
given situations, these current events, how would you like readers of your book to understand this period and its place in wider history, I suppose? Uh, the thing we must realise, and I'm guilty of this myself, is that nuclear war, the threat of nuclear war, the threat of any war, of course, has never gone away. Uh, when I think back to when I was a teenager, um, I was 10 when the Cold War ended. And so I became a teenager in that period where, you know, all the menace, had, it seemed, had suddenly fallen away. And so I grew up thinking there's no prospect anymore of war. But now, when I think back to that, I'm now, I'm now 42, when I think back to that, I think, how naive was I? How ridiculous? Because the, even though the Berlin Wall fell, the Soviet Union um, broke apart, we can look at these things and we can plot them on a timeline. These were definite and obvious events. But they don't um, mean that war can't happen again, as we're seeing now in Ukraine. We are never safe from war. Even the most, the ultimate horror, nuclear attack, we are never safe from it. So we must constantly remain aware of the threat and never get complacent. That was Julie McDowell. Her book is Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.